I'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're in part 2 of that first section of Ephesians 1, that that long ongoing sentence in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in verses 3 through 14. Uh, Since it's been a couple weeks since I've been with you, I thought I'd give you a quick review of where we've been or how, how we're organizing, how I see this Uh, epistle organized. We see that there are three chapters belonging to doctrinal issues and specifically uh, regarding Christological doctrine. Three chapters also are dedicated to the new life we have in Christ. And as we will uh, continue to talk about this morning, the the vital, the essential connection between those two, the understanding of of who God is in himself, who God has revealed himself to be as the triune God and our very lives in this world. So as we work through this epistle, we're going to be working through this epistle under the unifying heading of the exalted Christ. In our time in this letter, we will see this this subject of the exalted Christ under four headings. As we're in chapter 1, we're evaluating the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ. Eventually, when we get to chapter 2, we'll see the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. Chapters 4 and 5 are the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. And finally, when we reach chapter 6, right before Christ returns we'll see the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let us ask the Lord's help this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this word this morning. 
We ask that you would enable us by your spirit to understand it. That we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers also. Lord, that you would work through your servant. Though a vessel made of clay, I pray that you would do so with great power. To your praise and glory alone, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, and as I've been saying, that an accurate understanding of God in the life of the believer will lead to adoration and worship. This understanding that orthodoxy, right doctrine, will lead to orthopraxy, right living. And this is the idea we get when Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with a treatise on the Trinitarian operations in salvation. This comes before he gives them practical application. And it should be said that as we study these persons of the Trinity in short and certainly in um, uh, abbreviated ways, we must understand also that although we desire practical applications for our, very, for our own lives in our, in our everyday life, we must understand that when we study the doctrine of God, it is an end in of itself. The attaining or the apprehension of any part of the knowledge of God is an end in of itself. For we were created for such, to know our God, to know him as he's revealed in Scripture. So though we will make some practical applications, please know that as you study the deeper things of theology and learn more of who God is, who has he revealed himself to be in scripture, know that that is a glorious end in of itself for we will spend eternity learning more and more of these things. So our passage here this morning addresses all three persons the passage that was read this morning addresses all three persons of the Godhead. The last time I stood before you, we saw how verses 3 through 6 addressed the work of the Father. Here this morning, we will devote our time to verses 7 through 10, which concern the work of the Son of God. And then finally, we will see how the passage, the end of the passage in verses 11 through 14 address the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we continue with our review, we can see that in verse 3, we have a theme-like statement for verses 3 through 14. The passage contains a Trinitarian construction, referencing, blessed be God and Father. And then God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has what? who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have the Father mediating through the Son by the power of the Spirit, the reality, the practicality, if you will, of the Trinitarian operations of our salvation. So here we see Paul's intention to show the Ephesians that their salvation is a work of the triune God. And when we looked at the work of the Father, we saw that in verses 3 through 6, we could see his election, his love, and his grace. 
And so now as we turn our attention to the work of the Son of God, we would do well to remind ourselves of the wisdom of Athanasius. Athanasius is said to have approached Trinitarian doctrine, the one God who subsists in three persons, not as a problem to be solved, but as a mystery to be discerned. For there is an incomprehensibility of God, for we are mere creatures, we are finite, and we are attempting to understand something about the infinite. But yet we affirm down with the church through history, with, with scripture itself, that God has revealed himself to his people. And so there is something to apprehend about God. And we will do so with intention and we will do so hopefully with great benefit. Last time I was before you, we read a large portion of the Athanasian Creed. And as it is my intention, especially in this first part, to continue to introduce you to these uh, rich and important creeds of the faith that uh, introduce to us, that summarize for us the doctrine of the Trinity, what became known as uh, Catholic doctrine or universal doctrine, what must be believed to be saved in order to be saved, what is revealed in Scripture. This morning, I want to read to you the, count, uh, the Nicene Creed. The Council of Nicaea uh, in 325 AD produced a creed, which after the Council of Constantinople in 381 was given a fuller form. And then even, even on later on down the line, two words were added uh, at the end in regards to the Spirit being from the Father and the Son. And so we have this articulation of the truth of Scripture passed down to us from as early as the 4th century. But if we were to go back and spend some time in historical theology and study the Council of Nicaea, we wouldn't find a group of men sitting around in a room saying, what can we come up with about the Trinity? What new thing can we say? No, they were going to the scriptures. They were going into God's word, deriving and deducing from God's word these truths. And so we stand not on the shoulders of men primarily. We stand firmly with our feet planted in scripture and agree with the testimony of the spirit through the ages in the church. So follow, or not follow along, listen as I read for us the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, uh, excuse me, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. 
And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is creed is what the early church fathers formulated from scriptural exegesis and deduction. And the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 is certainly one of those passages that helped formulate this doctrine. And as we look at it this morning, specifically in verses 7 through 10, in relation to the work of the Son in salvation, we're going to see his redemption his revelation, and his restoration. As we look at his redemption, we see that it comes immediately to us in verse 7. The point here is that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This redemption may be helpful for us to examine it by way of definition, by way and by way of means or currency. The definition of redemption is that redemption involves the payment of a ransom to reclaim something that has been taken away or is held captive. And this was not a new concept to those who possess the Old Testament scriptures. We say time and time again that scripture builds on itself and echoes itself. And here is no exception. You can turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. Beginning in verse 25, we see that if your brother becomes poor... And sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the, ju in the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. This, I this first idea, and you can keep your thumb in Leviticus 25, of redemption from the Old Testament scriptures is a redemption of property, a redemption of item. Uh, we know this well in scripture. If you've ever read the book of Ruth and you understand Naomi's plight, Naomi comes and they had sold their land and moved away because of famine or they couldn't afford to keep it. And so they sold it and move away and she comes back. And what do they find in Boaz? We find a kinsman redeemer. We find one who purchases the property and gives it back. But he also marries into the family. And so in that way, it comes back into Naomi's possession. Her property was redeemed her land was redeemed we know this a little bit in our own day and age i've never 
done this myself or had uh, the need to do it, but we see them about. They're called pawn shops. If you have something that may be of value, hopefully it, you, you owned it, um, unless you need something you need to confess here this morning. Uh, but you take it of value, you give it to them, and you pawn it. They give you a receipt for, they give you money and a receipt. The money you can bring back in an, in an amount of days and redeem that property from the pawn shop. This is, uh, this concept of property redemption would have certainly been on the mind of Paul and it would have been on the mind of the Ephesian uh, believers who had the Hebrew scriptures. The other redemption in their mind would have been the redemption of a person. Look down at Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him. Or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And then it begins, it references the year of Jubilee again. Consider here that in ancient times, a man in debt was liable to be arrested and cast into prison. Or he would have to be bound to the one he was indebted to. But if he was cast into prison or bound to the one he was indebted to, he would remain there in bondage until his debt was paid, either by himself or another. Specifically here, one of his own family. He was to be redeemed by one of his own family, a brother or a cousin or, or some uh, distant relative, but one in his own family. And so it would be by no uh, surprise that when Paul speaks of redemption, eventually he's going to say that we have uh, redemption in Christ. And then he's going to say later when we address it, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. In other scriptures, he says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. We have been redeemed filially by a brother. Christ, in, in some respect, in that way, is our brother. And so we find in the def definition of redemption that there is, a, there is a ransom to be paid. In order for a person to be released from captivity, this ransom must be paid. Well, we're not talking shekels here or denarii or, or any other uh, physical uh, monetary currency. The means of our redemption, as it says in Ephesians 1, is the very blood of Christ. The atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The blood of Christ here is equated to the forgiveness of sins. And they stand as an emblem of God's undivided essence. Consider one commentator. The argument hinges on, biblical, on the biblical teaching, or on biblical teaching, and on the doctrine of divine simplicity. 
First biblical teaching frequently attests the way in which both justice and mercy mark the atoning work of God. And the gratuity of God fulfills rather than repudiates God's justice or the good justice of God. The doctrine of divine simplicity holds out that God is one undivided being in himself. There are no parts to God. He's not part justice and part mercy. He's not part goodness and part love. He is one. And so when we look at Christ paying the ransom for our redemption by his blood, we don't see God's love or mercy or grace at odds with his justice. And they're at this conflict and we divide God into these parts. They actually work together in fulfilling one another in perfect unity. So we don't find here a division of God between his attributes, but we find a harmony that the gratuity of God fulfills rather than repudiates the good justice of God. And the blood of Christ here is equated to the forgiveness of sins. We have the atoning object or the atoning means, which is blood, and we have the outcome with the forgiveness, the grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins. And so it is such an important emblem of our faith that we honor this redeeming sacrifice every Lord's Day in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So that we would remember apart from Christ's provision, we would perpetually exist in a prison of guilt and shame. We cannot escape by our actions we will not eventually become rich and redeem ourselves, as it says in Leviticus, as an option under the old covenant in that time, in that ancient time. For we are too tainted by sin. Eventually, uh, Paul will, will make this argument in chapter 2. We're, be, we're described as being dead in our trespasses and sins. How much does a dead man earn? Nothing. Nothing. We have to be rescued from this sinful state by something outside ourselves. And so in the supper, we celebrate that this redemption has come. So we take of what's outside of us. And though it is in physical form, we put it inside of us. As we recognize the spirit at work in these elements, encouraging and nourishing our souls. Matthew Henry comments, he says, This redemption we have in Christ and this remission through his blood, the guilt and the stain of sin could be no otherwise removed than by the blood of Jesus. All our spiritual blessings flow down to us in that stream. This great benefit which comes freely to us was, was dearly bought and paid for by our blessed Lord. And yet it is according to the riches of God's grace. We see here at the end there in verse 7 that it is according to the riches of his grace that this redemption comes to us. But we recognize that the knowledge of these riches comes not to us in the same fashion as other knowledge. We don't read scripture as we read a historical textbook and gather facts together and put them together uh, in our own mind and, and put them in our own hearts as it is. 
The knowledge of these riches comes not to us in the same fashion as other knowledge, but only through revelation. And so we see that this also testifies to his revelation. This, as one theologian puts it, is a kidney punch to stall our own projected self-direction and to puncture any sense of self-sufficiency. Consider the, the need of something to be revealed to you, something you couldn't accomplish on your own, something that no matter how many, uh, uh, what are those initials after your name, you don't come to this knowledge and saving faith on your own. It needs to be revealed to you. It needs to be given to you as a gift. And in like ways, this is revealed even in a greater way at the coming of our Lord or at his first coming. For Paul says that this is given to us, which was a mystery, making known to us. He lavishes, verses he lavishes upon us the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. For the nature of mystery here is not the idea of a mystery that cannot be comprehended or possibly comprehended by a certain few. Rather, the phrase signifies that this plan was not known because God had not yet chosen to reveal it. This idea of mystery really takes shape in Pauline doctrine, in Pauline discourse. He uses it over and over again to describe different aspects of the outcome of the first advent of Christ. But it only appears in one book in the Old Testament. Paul derives or Paul, Paul builds upon this doctrine. The spirit through Paul builds upon this doctrine of mystery out of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And it only really comes out of one chapter in Daniel. The second chapter and it appears eight times in the second chapter of Daniel. And it appears during and concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We know this somewhat well. Hopefully those that have been with us a while are somewhat familiar to it as, we've, uh, as Brother Brad and Brother Dana have taught through the book of Daniel. But as a way of uh, bringing us back into remembrance of these things, in verses 1 through 3, we read, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The first thing we understand about this mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as it, especially as we're going to draw conclusions as to the mystery of God's will in Christ, it, are revealed in Christ, I should say, is that the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was veiled, but not altogether unknown. He was troubled in his spirit. There was something about his dream that he knew enough to know about it to trouble him. Right? He wasn't indifferent about it. He was like, I have, I'm just totally in the dark about this. I don't know anything about it. I don't know if I'm supposed to be scared or if I'm supposed to be happy. No, he says, I'm troubled. 
Certainly it, it disturbed him that he didn't know the interpretation, but there was a troubling of his spirit as to that it hinted towards him in a veiled way that this was of great importance, that there was something here to be revealed to him. And though it was veiled, it was not altogether unknown. So when we look at mystery, we don't look at it as something completely unknown before the New Testament scriptures veiled but not completely unknown. And then he addresses, finally Daniel gets his uh, place before, the, before Nebuchadnezzar in verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel declares God to be the revealer of mysteries. Again, Daniel, though under operation of a prophet, speaking, thus saith the Lord, words in such ways, or receiving these visions from God and receiving their interpretation often by a messenger of the Lord, declares God to be the revealer of mysteries. And it's not just because God reveals this mystery. It's because Daniel, in the line of the prophets and reading the prophets, as Peter says, would have read the prophets and looked and inquired and pressed into the mysteries found in them as to the appearing or as to the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. Daniel knew God to be the revealer of mysteries because he read the scriptures. And he would have wondered with those mysteries along with the other Old Testament saints who read God's word and wondered what are these mysteries and anticipated the unveiling of them that God would not hold them in this veiled mystery forever. Finally in verse 47 the king is provided his answer. Daniel, through the Lord, gives him the dream and its interpretation. And the king answers, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar equates gods uh, as a revealer with God as supreme God. So when Paul here in Ephesians says that in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, he's saying that this God is not just the revealer of mystery, but this is God supreme, the one true and living God, the one who has revealed himself to be one God subsisting in three persons. And Paul here rejoices and entreats the Ephesian Christians to rejoice as Nebuchadnezzar did, that God is the revealer of mysteries. What is this mystery that he's entreating them to take part in worship of our God that has been revealed? Well, in the context of Ephesians, the mystery is that God has and is uniting all things in Christ. The primary application of this is the ingrafting of the Gentiles into the kingdom. 
which will result in the restoration of all creation. The mystery is that this is how it's going to be done. What was anticipated, what was type and shadow in the old covenant has come into the light of the revelation of Christ and further through the teaching of Christ and continued through the teaching of the risen and ascended and exalted Christ through his apostles. This is his restoration. The NASB reads here, it's helpful uh, for me to see other translations and how they interpret uh, these parts because sometimes they're just enough different to help you come to a good conclusion as we look at as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It reads, he made known to us the mystery or going back a little. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. It's interesting as, as I look at that summing up, I'm reminded of, uh, of a comic that we enjoy. Is it okay that we do, we listen to stand up comedy in my house? Anyway, his name's Nate Bargatze, not a believer, clean. This is being recorded. So pretty sure he's clean. Anyways, um, he has not offended me, uh, that I can remember. All that, all that preface to say is he talks about common core math and how you use, it's, it's a way to use one full sheet of paper to, to answer one math problem. And I think about it in that way is that we have all of scripture, all these pages of text, all these pages of revelation to be summed up in one thing, in one person, and that is Christ. The summing up here is used as drawing together disparate or disconnected parts and moving them on to some sort of resolution and climax. The Son provides both the fulfillment and the final clarification of promises, indeed, of all things. Colossian, Colossians chapter 1 helps in expanding this idea, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We see the uh, synergism here of Paul's writings in verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Colossians 1 and 15, it starts with the creation of all things, that all things were created through him and for him. But we know that though all things are working together for the good of those who love him, they're working together according to his decreed plans. 
according to God's prescriptive will, when Adam falls in the garden and breaks his covenant, we find that there is an undoing there. There is a schism. There is a chasm created between creature and creator. And Colossians chapter 1 helps us because it says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the chasm bridger. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He comes to sew all things together, to sum up all things in himself, that in everything he might be preeminent. And it finishes that, th- that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, is there not something that may describe this world in its and it's what it's grasping after. We know its need is the gospel. But what it grasps after so often is peace. And it laments whenever it perceives a lack thereof. In Colossians, the emphasis is on Christ's cosmic headship over all things in the universe. That is included here, too, as seen in the all things and including things in heaven and on earth. The general meaning of the whole is that God's will is for Christ to be head of the universe. The establishment of a new order, a new creation of which Christ shall be acknowledged as head. All created things and persons will be in submission to him and governed by him. The achievement of that goal has already begun to take place since he is coming into the world. It will not be fully realized until he comes again. So Paul is, is, is beginning to formulate this foundation so that when he gets to this practical, how does this happen in person-to-person relation? Well, you are a new creation. You are a new people. You are a, a new humanity. So there is now no dividing wall between you and your brother. We are one in Christ. Though there will be strife and there will need to be much charity given, much wisdom discerned, because it will not be fully realized until he comes again. Well, I just have some quick things to consider, some things to consider as it relates to his redemption. Consider the price of our redemption. The price of our redemption was the blood of our Savior. It was not that he would come and teach a new ethic. It was not that he would come and deliver a new law that we must live by. It's not that he would come and and condemn and put to shame at least those that he'd come to save. But he came to lay down his life for his people. That the shepherd comes to sacrifice himself for the sheep. But consider the glorious outcome of of our redemption the forgiveness of our sins the forgiveness of our sins that that though and maybe it's just me but though your past sins and the, those grievous ones tend to be the ones that linger longest tend to come back and haunt you and accuse you and yet here in Paul's writings here we have the proclamation that there is a forgiveness of those sins, that there is nothing being held against us anymore for it has been laid upon our Savior. Well, consider 
the revelation, his revelation. First, consider the nature of revelation, wisdom and insight. This is right thinking. This is, this is an outward and an inward reality. The necessity for there to be the involvement of the Spirit of God in wisdom or in revelation so that it produces actually wisdom in us. For wisdom is that coming together between right thinking and right living. For there's, a, there's something to be said when you don't really know something till you actually live by it. Wisdom is to, be, is to be able to take what is rightfully thought of and put it into practice. And that is to be done by the work of the Spirit. Consider the outcome of revelation, knowledge of God, and the right living in response to this knowledge. Oh, how desperately we need the revelation of God in our life as it is from the Spirit worked in us by God's Spirit that we will capitalize upon and talk more about next week or the next time I'm before you. But that this knowledge of God would produce right living in response to true knowledge of God. Consider restoration, His restoration. Consider the present restoration in Christ that all things are in subjection under Him. The spiritual powers controlling people were broken by Christ's death and resurrection. Believers are given the ability to stand against spiritual foes. We'll eventually also know that that ability is provided to us from Christ by way of armor. As he is the battled and embattled yet victorious commander of his people. He then bestows upon us that tried and true armor of God given to us now as believers to stand against our spiritual foes. To stand before all that afflicts us, to all that is broken in this world that comes barging through our doors, through our hearts, in those around us, in our very bodies, and recognize that this is all under the subjection of of Christ, which means nothing touches you, nothing comes to you except through his mediation, which means you can be sure that as he is a good and perfect high priest, nothing comes to you that is not for your good and his glory. Consider the future restoration in Christ. And I'll close with Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly.